0: What is going on, One Week Season fam? JM to win here. Welcome to Lesson 1 of the 2021 Draft Pack. I am excited to be with you guys again. This is the first thing I've recorded, I believe, the first thing I've recorded since football season 2020. Always feels nice to get back to this. This is kind of my home. This is my favorite part of OWS is getting to kick back and hang out with you guys. So we are going to be looking at, this is laid out in the description for this course. You know this if you read this, but I want to hit on this really quickly for those of you who just dove right in. We're going to look at drafting in best ball drafts on underdog And we're going to look specifically at the best ball mania, the puppy, the big dog, these tournaments where there's a huge payout in week 17. Through the lens of this, if you are doing regular best ball leagues, about 75 to 80% of this will be super valuable to you. If you are actually listening to this just in preparation for the NFL season, probably 50 to 60% of this is going to be really valuable to you. If you don't even play DFS, if you just play season-long, probably 40 to 50% of this will actually be really valuable to you because we'll be able to look at team situations and some strategy stuff and some different roster construction techniques. But this is specifically focused on these tournaments and the very specific strategies that will maximize your long-term ROI. Now... It's important to understand that these tournaments are basically the Millie Maker, right? So let's take the Best Ball Mania, which is where I've been focused. It's a $25 entry fee. It's a million dollars to first place. It sounds a lot. actually sounds a lot like the DraftKings Millie Maker. The payout structure is similar as well. It's a million dollars to first place. It's $175,000 to second place, and then things continue to drop dramatically from there. And so the focus should be on first place place that's one of the mistakes that we see people make is really sharp players are building roster are building really sharp rosters but with the mindset of making it to the playoff weeks weeks 15 16 17 so the way that the structure is in these tournaments is you're in a 12 person league and whoever's in first place in that 12 person league at the end of 14 weeks moves on to the playoff round so you have to win your 12 team league and that's necessary in order to win first place in this tournament and then you get put into playoff rounds where you have to finish in the top x spots out of x number of entries in weeks 15 and 16 to make it to week 17 week 17 in the in the best ball mania i believe this is the same in all three structures in the best ball mania there are 60 rosters and it's a million dollars to first place and again things drop off dramatically from there if you make it to week 17 that feels great but if you make it to week 17 and finish 40th place out of 60 rosters, you're, you're really not justifying the time that you're putting in here. And so targeting first place is extremely important. And so, yes, you want to make sure that you make it into the playoff rounds. You want to make sure that you make it out of your 12-team league and into week 15. But if you don't have a roster that can win in week 17... All of this is for naught. And I see a lot of people building rosters that are very sharp rosters and that give them a a good chance of getting out of their 12-team league. But again, anything can happen, but you want to maximize your percentage chances of being able to win in Week 17. And if you're not thinking about that as you're building your rosters, you're not going to have, you know, again, only one person is going to get first place per year. So we're looking at percentages. We're saying, hey, if we played out this tournament a million times, how many times would you get first place compared to somebody else. And so they're not maximizing their chances of getting that first place finish. And they're going to have to get luckier than other people are going to have to get than you're going to have to get essentially in order to get that first place finish. So we're going to look at two of my recent drafts. Actually, we're, we're going to look at my drafts 50 through 55. So six drafts total, but we're going to look at uh, drafts 54 and 55 on a deeper level, and we're going to use that to understand how we should approach these best ball tournament drafts. Then we're going to take a quicker look at four additional drafts, uh, drafts 50 through 53 of mine, and then we are going to do three live drafts essentially together. I'm going to do live drafts. We're going to apply everything that we've talked about and then talk about some more things as we do those live drafts. So this is a great way to... I was going to put together a course, you know, a written course. And one of the things I realized is, especially in these best ball tournaments, there's so much fluidity to the strategy and so many little things that have to be thought about and paid attention to that the rigidity of writing a course where I'm mapping out, hey, I'm hitting on these things in this section, these things in this section, and so on and so forth, wasn't going to capture the full scope of what I wanted to capture. So probably would take an hour and a half to two hours to read a whole course kind of in depth and it's going to take a little bit longer to listen to this probably twice as much time my recommendation is you play so these first parts are audio and the last the live drafts are going to be video my recommendation is that you play these at 1.2 or 1.25x speed whatever it is and that way you can get what should be about five hours total and you can get that in in about four hours um So it's going to take, you know, basically twice as much time as reading a course, but we're going to hit more than twice as much value by doing things this way. Lastly, for these audio segments, it's probably best for you to be at your computer. You can see the roster. You can follow along a little bit more closely. But if you're listening to this in the car, if you're listening to this on the go, that works just as fine. The the main thing I would encourage is... Lock in your focus is something that we talk about a lot in OWS is there's a difference between just putting in time and putting in focus. So when you're building rosters, when you're researching for a slate, when you're prepping for a slate, that flow state, that being in the zone, right? Like getting to that point where you're really locked in and focused as if this is a competition that you're trying to do your best in, is important. And that's the same thing in the preparation and training aspects of this. So lock in as if like, let's pretend we're athletes and we're preparing for a game that we're playing on Sunday and you need to know your assignments. You need to know all the little things about your competition. And the way to do that is to pay attention. So if you're at your computer or at your desk, you can take some notes on some of this and that's going to be really valuable. If not, I recommend again, that you make sure that you're locked in and paying attention. So, okay. The first thing that we want to talk about here is... This idea of letting the drafts come to you. People have gotten smart in these drafts. When I was first drafting in, I guess it was 2019. It feels like I did 2018 and 19, but I think I really dove in deep for the first time in 2019. And one of the approaches I took was if I missed out on a top tight end, I would take Cameron Brait and O.J. Howard deeper in the draft. They were around picks like 160 to 180 out of, you know, typically we, you know, once we get into the 200s is the end of the draft. And so I could get them in deep rounds, rounds 13 and 14, rounds 14 and 15. And basically, because of the way that those two operated in that Buccaneers offense with Jameis Winston there, if one of them was having a bad game, the other one had a shot at having a good game. And in fact, let me take a step back here and say one of the most important things to think about in these best ball drafts is covering your starting spots. So understand that scoring in best ball is the best score from your players. So the seventh, eighth wide receiver if you have a bunch of guys at wide receiver, let's say you have, if you're have you drafting an eighth wide receiver. If you have a bunch of guys at one through seven who are pretty consistent, and well, you're going to have this in all seven spots, but generally speaking, like consistent guys and a lot of upside, right? Guys who are going to get you 20, 25 point games. And we'll see this as we start getting into some of these rosters that I've drafted and into some of these live drafts. We'll see what I'm talking about here. But if you have a bunch of these guys who can get you these spiked weeks, Taking somebody in that eighth wide receiver spot who is a possession receiver or a guy who is just going to get you eight to 10 points on a good week, that's not going to get you many starting weeks. It would be better to take somebody who, like a Deshaun Jackson, who's getting drafted in the 190s to two like early 200s. Somebody like Deshaun Jackson where, hey, if he stays healthy, the Rams brought him in to be a deep threat with Matthew Stafford's big arm, he's going to have two or three games where he, you know, he's going to have a ton of duds, but he's going to have two or three games where he puts up a score that outscores your first round wide receiver, your second round wide receiver, and so you're filling in those starting spots. So we'll get back to that in a moment. But going back to this OJ Howard and Cameron Brate example, if you take a tight end, if you take Travis Kelsey. You're going to get, and this is all points in a 16-game season. It'll be slightly different this year with a 17-game season, but we'll just talk about past points. If you take Travis Kelsey in the first round, you're going to get about 200 points. Now, it's important to understand that, similar to what we talk about in DFS, as soon as you put a guy on your roster, you're saying that you think they're going to have a big game. Maybe you're building 20 rosters. Maybe you put Jacoby Myers on only one of those 20 rosters. Maybe you don't think Jacoby Myers is going to have a big game, but maybe you think he has a better than 5% chance. This is in a regular DFS week. And so you put him on one out of 20 rosters. Now, on your other 19 rosters, you're not betting on Jacoby Myers having a big game. But on that one roster where you take Jacoby Myers, you are saying... Jacoby Myers is going to have a big game. So then you start building around that scenario. What else does that mean for that game? How does he produce a big game? Who are the Patriots playing? And what are the points on the other side that are forcing the Patriots to be aggressive? What does that mean for Cam Newton or Mac Jones, whoever's at quarterback? Once you put a player on your roster, you're saying they're going to have a big game. So taking that over to best ball, once I draft a player in this tournament structure where first place is all that matters, once I draft a player... I am going to assume that they are staying healthy and that they are producing at or above the level I'm drafting them to produce at. So if I'm taking a guy in the third round, I am expecting that he produces like a first, second, or third rounder. I'm not now going to build in a bunch of contingencies for if he performs poorly or if he gets hurt. Now, there are exceptions here. There are certain places where it makes sense to take, if you take Dalvin Cook, Alexander Madison, you can take him so deep in the draft that, look, if Cook gets hurt, Alexander Madison's going to step in as a three-down back, and there's a lot of value in just locking in that extra safety. Same thing with the idea of taking an entire offense. If you can take Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen and Irv Smith now you know that you've locked in a lot of these pass-catching. Most of these pass-catching points from the Vikings, and whoever scores on one week, you're getting those points. There are different ways to play that, but as far as like taking an individual player, you're assuming health, you're assuming production, and that's important to keep in mind here. So once you take Travis Kelsey... In the first round, you're expecting 200 points. Once you take Darren Waller in the second round, you're expecting 200 points. Once you take George Kittle in the second or third round, you're expecting about 170, 180, 185 points. If you take Kyle Pitts in the fourth or fifth round, you're expecting that he's going to get at least 150 to 170 points because that's what he needs to get in order to justify that draft slot. If you miss out on those guys you now, you don't you don't need to try to find the perfect home run swing at tight end. Great if you can get it, right? Great if you get Darren Waller a couple years ago in the 15th round. And tight end is one of those positions where you can typically find a couple guys who are a good bet to significantly outperform their draft slot. But a lot of times those, you know, sleepers at tight end end up being busts. And so you need to think about how am I getting points that compete at that level? How do I cover this starting spot? So one of the things that I would do in 2019 is take OJ Howard and Cameron Brait because when it was all said and done, when you took the best starting score from the two of them each week, and some weeks they're going to score two, some, some weeks they're going to score three, like your best score from those two, but you're going to have those 14-point O.J. Howard game and then the the 13-point Cameron Break game. And those are going to happen often enough. Then when it's all said and done, you're going to have about 150 points. And basically, it's like turning two late picks into one early pick. And what I see people do is they get locked in on like, oh, well, it's part of my strategy to get a top tight end. And so they'll reach on some of these players. Or it's part of my strategy, you'll see this as we go through these drafts, it's part of my strategy to stack an offense. And so somebody might they get Stefan Diggs in the first or second round. And so all of a sudden they're in the third round reaching for Josh Allen because they wanna make sure they get that stack. What we wanna do is let the draft come to us. If somebody else reaches for Josh Allen early, hey, there's gonna be another draft where we can stack these two together we are going to take what the draft gives us to put us in best position against the people we're competing against and to best position us for week 17 so when you're in one of these drafts where a lot of players are available below their adp their average depth average depth average draft position when, the, when guys keep falling, that means that other people in this draft you're in keep reaching for players based on some preconceived notion of how they want to build these rosters. We want to look at this like a DFS weekend. And I want to encourage you, like, if you, let's say you play 50 bucks per DFS weekend, 100 bucks per DFS weekend, you can put 250 bucks into these best ball tournaments. And instead of playing 10 in the best ball mania, play 50 in the puppy which is the five dollar tournament that way you get 50 rosters and you can build a really nice portfolio you can say hey i don't i don't actually think that this i don't think that austin eckler actually belongs at the 11 number 11 number 12 pick but i'm going to get him on a few of my rosters just to build them into my portfolio and then on those rosters i'll build around scenarios that say austin eckler blows up for a big season you know basically treat it like dfs and say." I am going to, when I take these players, even if they're not the players that I love, I'm going to build, assuming that they hit the season that others are expecting them to hit, and I'm going to build around them in a way that makes sense for that being the way that things play out. And so it allows you, with a lot of different rosters, to build things a lot of different ways and maximize your chances of one roster getting to first place. You don't want to say, hey, these are the players I'm on, and this is my strategy, and sure, you're going to have players that you like more than others— And the deeper into the draft you get, the more valuable it is to hit on those players. You know, if you're in round three and you're avoiding two-thirds of the guys available in round three and just focusing on a handful of guys, you have to end up being absolutely right. That's rarely going to happen. You should allow the consensus of everybody to dictate kind of how you're building your roster now as you get into the picks 120 140 150 then you can start saying hey these are the guys who I actually feel a lot more strongly about because you're less likely to get burned by missing out on some of the other people uh, some of the other players that people are drafting but early on you want to kind of build a lot of different avenues for your rosters to succeed and I'll tell you like even if you don't get first place even if you don't get a roster to week 17, you put in 250 bucks, you draft well. And in the puppy, there's more mistakes being made than in the best ball mania. And in the best ball mania, there's more mistakes being made than in the big dog. So if you're in the puppy, you put in 250 bucks, even if you don't make it all the way to week 17 with any rosters, you're going to make back 100, 125, $150 just from having enough good rosters. And so you can basically look at it again. Let's say you play... 50 to 100 bucks per DFS weekend. You can put in 50 drafts. You can do two drafts at once once you get a feel for these things. Put in about 25 hours. It's a lot of fun. So you're getting enjoyment out of it. You're positioning yourself for a huge payoff. You're learning and prepping for the season in quality ways. You're forcing yourself to think through different teams, situations, strategies, which again, all prepares you for the DFS season. And worst case, you're losing about one weekend's worth of investment while putting yourself A, giving yourself something fun to keep an eye on all season long, and B, putting yourself in position for a big GPP payout, a big first place payout. So I want to encourage you to build a lot of rosters and think with that in mind where you're building a portfolio of rosters. And that that allows you to not reach on things and have these preconceived notions of exactly how your strategy needs to go but to instead be able to say, okay, here's how this draft is falling and here's how I'm going to react accordingly. This is one of the reasons why I selected drafts 54 and 55 of mine is because they're two very different drafts from one another as far as how these teams are put together. And both of them were very much based around how the draft was falling for me. So again, we're going to spend time on 54 and 55 And then we'll take a a glance at composition on 50 through 53 just to see some different ways that these rosters can come together and then apply all of this to some live drafts. So one last thing I want to cover before we dive into this first draft we'll look at is going back to this idea of covering your starting spots. So on your roster, you're going to roster 18 guys. You're going to start nine guys each week. It's going to be one quarterback two running backs, sorry, you're going to start eight guys each week, one quarterback, two running backs, three wide receivers, a tight end, and a flex. Now, there are different ways to handle these drafts depending on how things fall. But let's first look at what are the toughest positions to fill. The toughest positions to fill at an elite level. Now, think about elite level, right? There are quarterbacks who score... 350 to 400 points throughout the course of a season. Those are the Lamar Jacksons, the Dak Prescotts, the Patrick Mahomes, the Kyler Murrays, the Josh Allens, the guys who can score with their legs and with their arms. Then there are the guys who, in a great season, no matter how perfectly everything comes together, like the Roethlisbergers, the Matt Ryan, the pocket passers, even if everything comes together, they're going to put up like 320, 330 points in a really good season. And then there are the guys, the Sam Darnolds and the uh, Jimmy Garoppolo's, let's say he's starting for a full season. Like those guys might get you 250, 270 points. Now, they my Kirk, Kirk Cousins is a good example. He's gonna have maybe only 270 points throughout the season, but he's gonna it's gonna come with some spiked weeks. It's gonna come with some weeks where the run gets shut down or the Vikings fall behind. And all of a sudden they start pulling out these bootleg passes. They start scoring touchdowns. They start hitting big plays. And Kirk Cousins is going to have a few 30 point games now, or 25 point games, right? Now, if you have a Kirk Cousins and that's all you're relying on at quarterback, you're only going to get up to like 270 points. But if you can pair Let's say you miss out on the top quarterbacks. If you can pair a Kirk Cousins with a Matt Ryan, where Matt Ryan is also going to get a few 25-point games and then a bunch of steady production, well, now if the layering works out just right, in other words, Cousins has a bad game, but hey, it worked out because Matt Ryan had a good game that week, you can end up creating, kind of like I talked about with O.J. Howard and Cameron Brate a couple years ago, you end up creating a fifth or sixth-round quarterback. And you get that quarterback spot covered in a way that you can compete with those people who drafted Patrick Mahomes, those people who drafted Lamar Jackson, those people who drafted Josh Allen. Looking at that another way, if you draft Lamar Jackson, I see this so often and it's maddening to me. If you draft Lamar Jackson and you use, you invest a fourth or fifth round pick in your quarterback, don't come back and now draft another quarterback in the eighth round round when there are other positions that you need to be covering. You have drafted Lamar Jackson early and basically said, I expect Lamar Jackson to hit his high-end range. I expect him to score 350 to 400 points. How many times is Matthew Stafford starting over Lamar Jackson compared to the running back or wide receiver or tight end that you could be taking in that spot? You have taken Lamar Jackson in a spot where there are some really, really valuable wide receivers and running backs still available. So you have to say, hey, I am going to lean on this Lamar Jackson pick and wait until very deep in the draft to take my backup quarterback because this pick is only getting you a few extra points, right? The Lamar Jackson's only going to have a few true duds throughout the season, and then you would need, so let's say you take Matthew Stafford, you would need Stafford to have one of his big games coinciding with the week that Lamar Jackson has a dud and that would have to happen consistently for that for you to really be able to justify using that pick on that quarterback you've already secured your starting quarterback spot so toughest spots to secure are quarterback because you just get that one starter and there's going to be these handful of running quarterbacks who are going to put up big scores throughout the season or quarterbacks in dynamic offenses. Dak Prescott's a great example. Dak Prescott isn't going to run as much as Lamar or Kyler, but this offense is going to put up points. He's going to be a big part of it. He's going to pick up some points with his legs, and he's going to pick up a lot of points through the air this season. So if you get one of these Top five, six quarterbacks, and and I'll actually throw Aaron Rodgers in there because he's still being underdrafted ba- because of the time that he spent away from camp. His ADP was in like the one ten range, and then once he showed up at camp, it started rising. But people don't really know how high to push it. We've seen this with Daryl Henderson as well. He was being drafted in the eighties and nineties for a really long time. And now he's being drafted in the the fifties and the high 60 or the low sixties, but people don't really know, Hey, do we keep drafting him higher and higher, or is this a good place for him? So Aaron Rogers is kind of in that place right now, as I record this and Aaron Rodgers isn't going to have the Lamar Jackson games, the, the high end games, but he's going to be extremely consistent. He's going to get you 320, 330 points throughout the season. Um, and You know, you feel really good about the way you have that spot filled up. So if you miss out on one of these top quarterbacks who just truly secure and lock down that quarterback spot, if you miss out on the Dak, the Lamar, the Patrick Mahomes, the Kyler, etc., you want to make sure that you get a two or even three quarterback setup that can allow you to compete throughout the course of the season with those top guys. Same thing with tight end. If you take, if I take Travis Kelsey or Darren Waller, I don't even need a backup tight end. If something happens, if something falls to me deep in the draft, great, I'll take the backup tight end. But I don't need a backup tight end because Travis Kelsey is going to get 200 points. If I take some other tight end in, if I take Eric Ebron in the 17th round, what does that change for my total tight end scoring at the end of the year? I still probably get about 200 points. It's very rare that that Eric Ebron is going to significantly outscore Travis Kelsey, especially compared to other ways that I could use that pick on like a Xavier Jones where you say, hey, if Daryl Henderson goes down or if things shift in this Rams backfield, I could get a league winner here. What is the point of taking Eric Ebron if you've already invested a first round pick on Travis Kelsey? So tight end, same thing. If I get one of these top guys, I say, look, this spot is taken care of. It's locked in. If I miss out on one of these top guys, then I start trying to think, hey, maybe Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry pairing. Uh, Maybe get two or three of these guys who have yards after catch ability. Gerald Everett, Jonu Smith. Maybe get, you know, if you miss out on these guys, get deep into the draft before you even take your tight ends. You say, hey, who are some guys who, you know, they're going to have some disappointing games, but they're going to have some touchdown games and piece all of those together and you end up with a pretty good tight end score at the end of the year. You could take a Jared Cook and Eric Ebron and O.J. Howard, and you've got three, three late-round tight ends who essentially equal one third or fourth-round tight end. So again, if you get one of these high guys assume that that spot's taken care of. It's locked in. It's going to be enough to get you to week 15 to where taking another tight end super deep in this draft isn't going to significantly boost your chances there. And it's going to give you the guy that you need in week 17 to put up a big score. So don't worry about that. Now start focusing on the other positions. The next most difficult spots to lock in are RB1 and RB2. Because if you get out of the top 100 picks... And really, even if you get out of the top 60 to 70 picks, but especially if you get out of the top 100 picks, you run out of guys who are going to consistently produce points. So yes, there's Alexander Madison, there's Kenyon Drake. So Alexander Madison, you know, you're hoping for an injury and he ends up being the lead back. Xavier Jones, you're hoping for an injury and he ends up being the lead back. Marlon Mack is going undrafted in most drafts. Jonathan Taylor gets injured, Marlon Mack is going to have a lot of big games or a lot of really solid games, and you can take him in the 17th or 18th round. Then you have the guys like James Conner, Kenyon Drake, these guys who are the the true B-backs in a timeshare. Latavius Murray, they might put up some solid games, but they might really only give you one or two starting-worthy games throughout the course of the season if the guy in front of them stays healthy even if the guy in front of them gets hurt they're not guaranteed to take over this big workload and so these guys are kind of like depth type options and so if you don't have rb1 and rb2 covered by the time you get to the 100s you're really trying to piece things together to give yourself the opportunities uh, to compete with the people who have you know a first and second round running back or first second and third round running back Um, it's easier to piece together wide receiver deeper in the draft than it is to piece together running back deeper in the draft. So even if I go with a quote, you know, the whole people carry this zero RB approach over to best ball. The problem is in season long, you go zero RB, there's going to be injuries. You scoop up guys throughout the season. And by week seven, you have two of the most valuable running backs because you've just added them onto your roster. Well, In best ball, you can't do that. You've drafted your team. Your team is set. You can't touch it from there. So you have to, if you're in the habit of consistently waiting until the 100s to fill in RB2, you need so much to go right for enough of your teams to make it to week 15 for you to even have a shot in the playoffs, right? You need injuries to really fall exactly your way. So yeah, I'm taking Alexander Madison, I'm taking Marlon Mack, I'm taking some of these guys, but I'm taking them as a fourth a fifth running back to where I can say, look, these guys can be game changers for me, but I don't need to rely on them. So running back RB1, RB2 is something that you want to be thinking about for me in the in the top 100 picks. And there are times where I go with a quote zero RB strategy where I take wide receivers in rounds one, two, three, four, five, even if things fall that way. But then I'm using those last several picks in the 100s to make sure I get several running backs. And I try to I'll reach for Melvin Gordon a little bit. He's getting drafted around 118, 120 right now. Melvin Gordon has a chance to actually be the 1A. Um, and he should still, you know, people are kind of writing him off. And that's why he's being drafted outside the top 100. But it's likely that you know, he put up 170, 180 points last year for the Broncos. It's likely that he and Javante Williams split things enough that Melvin Gordon can still get you 140, 150 points and that he's still going to be valuable on a number of weeks, especially as like a number three running back. So there are guys who, you know, I have sort of on my radar if I end up having to fill in the blanks on running back deeper into the draft. And then wide receiver is the spot where it's easiest to fill out the roster, but you got to also understand that you need some spiked weeks at wide receiver. So what I like to do is I like to try to combine picks to create a first or second round wide receiver. So what I mean by that is if I'm, if there's a guy like T Higgins is a good example, T Higgins, and actually we'll get to this first roster here in a moment and kind of fly through some of it, uh, to make up time, but you'll see what I'm talking about here. Like guy like T Higgins, yeah, he's going to have 160, 170, 180 points when the season's over. Now, like a Devontae Adams can put up 250 to 300. Um, Stephon Diggs, DeAndre Hopkins, they can put up 225 to 275. So Tyree Hill can put up you know anywhere from 225 to 300, 325, depending on how the season shakes out and big plays and all that. So that kind of gives you some context for where the scoring goes. T. Higgins is going to put up 150, 160, 180 more than likely. And you have to understand where these points are coming from. Like Cole Beasley put up 145, 150 the last couple of years. Maybe he even got up to 160. But Cole Beasley is getting that from steady production. He's rarely going to have a huge game. T. Higgins, well, he's going to have a couple just because of that offense, but that's not what you're rostering him for. Same thing with like a Jamison Crowder, just role-driven, steady production might get you 140 points, but it's more like consistent, eight points, 10 points, 12 points. T. Higgins is in a young offense. They throw the ball a ton. That's good. They have a good quarterback. That's good. They still have a mediocre defense. It's going to be improved, but it's still going to be mediocre. Teams are going to score points against them. That's good. They have a, a good running back, but a bad offensive line. So again, passing is going to be part of what they're doing. But they have Jamar Chase. They have Tyler Boyd. They have Joe Mixon. Honestly, they like C.J. Uzoma quite a bit. So the ball is going to be spread around. and T. Higgins is going to get to his 160, 170 points through some big games because he can hit big plays, he's a big body, he's a touchdown threat. Um, And as we go through these drafts, I'm going to keep hitting on specific things about individual players, because it's important to understand what you're drafting, what a guy provides to your team. So again, T. Higgins is a big play threat, he can score touchdowns, and then he's going to have some games where he puts up four or five points. The great thing there is You just need to secure your starting spots. Spiked weeks, we'll talk about it all the time, spiked weeks are so important to secure in best ball. So if you get Lamar Jackson and he can put up a 30-point games, and then you pair him with a Matt Ryan or even a Ben Roethlisberger so that the weeks when Lamar puts up 14 points or 16 points, maybe you get 22, 23 from your Matt Ryan, from your Ben Roethlisberger then you're in great shape because you're getting these spiked weeks and then on the down weeks, you're still adding some extra points. So with T. Higgins, you want to make sure that the spiked weeks have maximum value. You don't want just to have T. Higgins starting for your roster every week because now you're just getting a a fifth, sixth round wide receiver guy who puts up 160 to 180 points and that's what he provides for you throughout the season. But if you take a T. Higgins and you can combine him with a Cole Beasley, well, now they become basically a second-round wide receiver because the weeks when T. Higgins puts up four or five points, Cole Beasley can still get you 10 points. And so you add five points here, seven points there, six points there on these down T. Higgins weeks, and then on the weeks when T. Higgins has a big game, he's your starter, and you end up getting 200 points from these two wide receivers. Now it's not as, um, lo- as, as not as boxed in as these like two wide receiver pairings, but that's just an example of how all of this works is you want to create these layers that give you opportunities for these spiked weeks to have maximum value. I see a lot of people who will draft eight, nine wide receivers, but these deeper wide receivers are like the wide receivers, four through nine are all guys who might not even see the field might not really have a role there's just a lot of question marks around them if you and you know it's valuable to have a rondell moore or a rashad bateman to have one of these guys who you know could end up having a big season but if that's like all of your four through nine receivers you're putting yourself in a tough spot because you really need things to click in place instead of saying look I am building a bunch of first, second, third round draft picks in the way I'm putting my roster together. So wide receiver, that's what we want to be thinking about, is if you get a Devontae Adams, if you get a DeAndre Hopkins, if you get a Calvin Ridley, a Stefan Diggs, you can basically say, hey, look, this wide receiver one spot is locked in. Now let me focus on wide receiver two. If you end up taking two highly drafted wide receivers— Wide receiver one and wide receiver two are locked in. But now you have to start thinking about, okay, again, we're assuming health and production. So wide receiver one, wide receiver two are locked in. But then you need to say, okay, how do I layer in my picks to take care of wide receiver three, flex spot, and so on. So again, we're thinking very specifically about getting starting spots and getting as many spiked week starts as possible and maximizing the value of those spiked weeks so that these guys who get spiked weeks but are sort of up and down on their down weeks you fill in for them with somebody else who can get you consistent production, raise the floor of that scoring, and basically turn that fifth, sixth round wide receiver into a first or second round wide receiver with the total points that you're able to put together from that spot. Um, So with all of that, that's actually uh, quite a bit of background. So we're going to use that as background and then start a second audio note for this uh, first draft that we want to look at. And a lot of the things that we're going to look at in these first two drafts have been kind of covered here in this overview. And then we'll use the live drafts to hit on a lot of the more fluid elements that we'll want to look at in these drafts as we go through them. So uh, I will close out this audio and I will see you on the other side of this for the first past draft.